Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back, fight fans, to the darker side of boxing. I'm your host, Sean, joined by Johnston, as always, to discuss this episode all about the life, the times, and the mysterious death of Zora Foley. A fighter from the 1960s, very much well known for fighting some of the great heavyweights of that era. Johnston, this is another episode that we wanted to bring to everybody. We enjoy bringing to people, we enjoy talking about you know, the different elements of these fighters' lives, and many people might not think of Zora Foley as someone that jumps out to you as a darker side of boxing episode, but actually there are a lot of elements in this that are going to be probably quite educating for people that people didn't know before. Certainly we didn't know before anyway by doing the research for it, that, that there was many elements to Zora Foley's life that actually do sit under the darker side of boxing. It certainly does. Zora was a, a fantastic fighter. Zora Foley was one of the best heavyweights around at his time. And as you as you rightly mentioned, he fought some of the very best. We're going to go through some of those names that he fought and how he got on against those guys. And, you know, this everything about him, it, it's, it's a fascinating story about Zora as a person. And I think we, we will put that in the right context. And then obviously what happens to him after his boxing career, when, when it ends and some of the decisions that he makes that then leads in to what happens to him after. If, if no one knows about Zora, you know, he does pass, but a lot earlier than many anticipated. And I think there has been a lot of conspiracy surrounding that death. And we're going to dive into that. And that will be the main brunt of the second half of this episode. But before we do that, we're going to start off with the career of Zora and what he went through in the early stage of his life. And even that alone, there's some great stuff in there as well. So you will get the gist of it and you'll understand that actually this is very much a Dark Side of Boxing episode. Before we get started on the episode and we start telling you the story of Zora Foley, 
there is, of course, a disclaimer. And that disclaimer doesn't read anything. It's just me telling you it. So what I'm telling you now is that <laughs> if that if you don't enjoy elements of true crime, if you don't enjoy grisly details, the demise of people, people that are basically terrible, people that have got some really nasty quotes, people that are talking about things in very derogatory ways, then this isn't the podcast for you. Switch it off right now and don't come back. But for everybody that's already here, that has probably been with us for a long time, and he's here to listen to the true crime element, the boxing element, and of course the conspiracy theory element of this episode, then you're in the absolute right place to listen to it. This is the tale of the mysterious life and death of Zora Foley. And it all begins when he was born, Zora Bell Foley, on May the 27th, 1931. His mother, Maggie Foley, had separated from Zora Foley Sr., a courthouse maintenance man, when Zora Jr. was 10 years old. Maggie moved to Dick Old's farm in Chandler, Arizona from Dallas, Texas, taking her three kids with her. It was Foley himself and, of course, his two sisters, Mae Francis and Mary Bell. Soon after, Maggie began working the alfalfa and cotton fields, milking cows and tending cattle. The former mayor of Chandler, Coy Payne, who grew up down the road from the Foley, said there was a big need for farm workers at that time because most of the country's young men were off serving in World War II. Maggie Foley then moved the family into the southeast of Chandler and young Zora began delivering and picking up milk bottles. A Chandler resident, Eddie Encinas, remembered that when Zora wasn't working, he was a typical kid who liked to swim in the canal near Pecos Road, but he would get bullied. Encinas recalled, Zora was a small kid who used to get picked on, believe it or not, but in later years, no one picked on him. Foley attended... Ocotillo Elementary School up to the 8th grade and during that time he had a sudden growth spurt growing to 6 foot 1 and weighing around 180 pounds. The bigger boys left him alone by this point and discovered that he was good at most sports with baseball being his first love. Foley told the Phoenix Gazette reporter Bob Allison in 1957 I could hit him far when I hit him. Well when Foley was 16 he he decided to enlist in the US Army Although some records actually suggest that he was 18 because he had lied about his age, which apparently he didn't need to do, but he did in a way. While in the army, he obtained a general educational development, which was a GED, which is the equivalent to completion of high school. In the book, Zora Foley, The Distinguished Life and Mysterious Death of a Gentleman Boxer by Marshall Terrell, he wrote, during basic training at Ford Ord, California, Foley got his first taste of boxing. Foley's platoon sergeant happened to be a post-heavyweight champion. The sergeant was scheduled to risk his title against a boxer named Lucius Tate, but suffered a last-minute injury and asked for a volunteer to take his place in the fight. Although he had no experience in the ring, Foley raised his hand. Willie Artbuckle, Foley's brother-in-law, recalled the rest of the story and he said... It was Tate's hand that was raised after the three-round bout in which Foley was knocked down in each round. In spite of that beatdown, he stuck with boxing and learned to love the sport, which many many of these fighters do. It always happens. They get a little bit of a beatdown and then they come back. Well, within a year, Foley got his revenge when he beat Tate for the sixth Army Championship 
and went on to win the All-Army and All-Service Heavyweight Championships after that. In a reported 73 bouts while in the Army, he was beaten only twice. Impressive start. Now, Foley's time in the Army wasn't only about boxing. He met Joella Arbuckle while on military leave, visiting his family in Chandler. Joella had moved from Oakland to Chandler in 1937, and she lived in two tents pitched in a cotton field, one for sleeping and the other for eating. She told Chandler historian Lydia Y. Harris, My father died at around 40-something, leaving a six-week-old baby, and we moved to a cotton camp in Aloy, Arizona. Picking cotton was seasonal work. When I went to school, it was Ocotillo, and our teachers came all the way from Phoenix. We had to take the bus with no windows. I did not like school, and so I quit. Joella was 18, and, and Zora Foley was 20 when they married on September the 20th, 1952. Two years before they met, Zora was involved in two poignant moments during the Korean War, the first being the Battle of Incheon, which took place from September the 10th to the 19th in 1950. Of the 40,000 soldiers that included American and South Korean fighting alongside one another, 224 were killed and 809 wounded. A year later, Foley was involved in the Bloody Ridge Battle, which took place between August the 18th and September the 5th, 1951. This battle involved several small but intense and bloody clashes, which cost the lives of 2,700 American and South Korean soldiers and 8,000 North Korean soldiers. Oh, Jesus. Oh, you, you can't even imagine what those guys must have gone through. Two of the most blood, bloodiest battles in the Korean War and, and Zora Foley was in the midst of that. Incredible tale, really. And Well, both battles uh, would have been horrifying for all of those men and Zora Foley was no different. He actually told Mark Cram Sr. when he was writing for Sports Illustrated, he said, I can't get nervous anymore in terms of when fighting in the ring. I left that back there. The chinny would pour in and come at you screaming, blowing the boogles, and, and you couldn't stay nervous long. That's all there seemed to be. Chinny, blood and mud. You knew if you could hold on long enough, you would make it. Maybe that's where I learned to stick it out in this boxing when everything was going wrong. And if anyone wanted to know, Chinny is like a, it's a name they used to call the Chinese who are on the same side of, as the North Korean. Um, obviously, the Americans fighting with the South. So for his service, Sergeant Foley received five battle stars and frostbite on his feet, which actually almost led to gangrene and amputation. Now, his son, Zora Foley III, said, my father had feet problems all of his life. And that's why he developed such a good defense in the ring. Fancy footwork wasn't an option. Once fully recovered, he was discharged in 1953 and he received the hero's welcome in Chandler. But he was left homeless and broke. While fighting in the Korean War, his mother's house was burnt to the ground in a cooking accident. He needed a way of making money. So he looked towards the one trade that he was very good at while serving in those bloody battles. And that, of course, was boxing. Zora briefly then moved to Virginia when he returned from the Korean War with his wife Joella and she remembered that it was the first time I left Arizona. It was an interesting time in my life. Now Joella was a very religious person and she made sure all their kids went to church on a Sunday and by the sounds of things she was a great cook as well. When they returned to Chandler at 373 on South Colorado Street they started a family almost immediately. 
Zora III was born in 1954, followed over the years by Denise, Mary Bell, Robert, Geoffrey, Francine, Tanya, Dorothy and Jack. A total of nine children. Clearly they didn't have tallies back then or they didn't have a tally in their house because that's a hell of a lot of children. Now Robert remembers his dad being a fun and real prankster, but he could be a disciplinarian too. He had no real problem taking the belt to our hides if we got our line. Although Foley had demonstrated a natural ability in the ring while in the army, it was under the tutelage of his trainer, Al Fenn. Now, Al Fenn was a former promoter, a manager, a cutman, a marine, and then a publisher of the Copper Era newspaper in Clifton, Arizona. And that's how Zora changed his all-attacking style. And Fenn said he liked to go toe-to-toe and swap a lot of leather. But I told him he couldn't do that anymore. I showed him how to breathe properly, how to build his stamina, and how to defend himself in the ring. So along with Fenn, a Phoenix businessman named Bill Swift took a chance on young Zora Foley and signed him to a management contract in August 1953. Their contract included a morals clause, a common theme with many black fighters back then, and that was all about having the right profile outside of the ring. Joe Lewis had a similar clause in his contract, and all this stemmed from Jack Johnson's actions outside of the ring when he was the heavyweight champion in his day. It was a way of making sure that the white hierarchy would find him likeable. But luckily for them, Foley was the perfect role model from the very beginning. And he knew how to conduct himself outside of the ring. He was a family man. He didn't smoke and he didn't drink. Tom Carlson, who was a former teacher and coach at Westwood High School in Mesa, Arizona, said, We use Zora Foley as an example for our youth and that they they could accomplish if they worked hard and lived their lives right. He was a hero, not just in Chandler, but the entire Phoenix Valley. When Foley was finally ready for his first professional bout, he actually won a decision against a guy called Jimmy Ingram on September 26, 1953, at the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles, uh, one of his favourite venues in the early stages of his career. After fighting to a draw in his next bout, Foley won his next two by stoppage to end 1953. To kickstart the new year, Foley took on Howard King 17-2-3 once again at the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles. The Associated Press, they wrote about his performance that night and they wrote, Zora Foley, promising young heavyweight from Chandler today, still had an unblemished slate as a professional. Foley was the 7th round TKO victor over Howard King in a scheduled 10-round main event. Foley floored King in the 5th for a 7 count and referee Joe Stone stopped the lopsided contest at 2 minutes 35 seconds of the 7th. Foley followed up his 4th win with a 1st round knockout in March before being scheduled to fight Joe Sandell in April. That fight fell through and Jackie Condon stepped in as a last minute substitute. The Arizona Republic wrote that Foley shook Condon with a stiff left jab and then tagged him with two right hands and then hurt him. The referee stopped the bout with Condon staggering in the third. Now to finish off 1954, Foley won eight fights, stopping three to go 14-0 with one draw. His next opponent was J.D. Reed on January the 20th, 1955, again at the Olympic Auditorium. The Los Angeles Times reported Foley was knocked down by a right to the body in the early in the first round. He controlled the rest of the bout and opened a cut on the inside of Reed's lip in the fourth round that led to the eventual stoppage 
in the eighth. Well, Foley maintained his unbeaten start with three more knockout wins in 1955. And in 19 fights, he had won 18, with obviously that one draw of his second professional fight. Well, it was inevitable that his performances would begin to attract some unwanted attention. As you might be aware, the mob were very much putting the strings in boxing during this period. We're going to direct you to the, another darker side of a uh, boxing episode, which was the boxing and the mob in season one. If, if you want more details on the boxing at boxing and the mob. So it was expected that this young clean cut heavyweight demonstrating hot potential could catch the eye of the mob. And Fenn, well, he only knew too well of the heavy handed tactics from previous fighters within his, his stable. He spoke about their approaches in a 2008 interview with boxing historian Christopher James Shelton. And this is what he said. He said, the mob threatened both myself and my partner, Dave McKay, the Nevada mob. An Italian by the name of Ralph Gambino approached me one day and said that that boxer, as in Irving Starr, belonged to them now. Another fighter they wanted was a guy called Ray Coleman. The mob called and warned me that they would kill Coleman's daughter. I laughed at them. Ray Coleman doesn't even have a daughter. But those guys knew me and decided to leave us alone. Dave McKay, on the other hand, he wasn't so lucky. He was actually later murdered in Los Angeles. According to Fenn, he was actually suffocated with a pillow and his murder was never solved. Fenn said, I guess that could have been me. Wow. Wow. Well, again, another little... Side story there, uh, that, that, you know, that could have been Fenn. Essentially, that could have been yeah. Fenn. Uh, somehow we managed to, to escape that. And obviously, as you've said, Johnston, if you've not heard about the Mafia's ties to boxing and how much of a stronghold they had, then please do go back to season one and check that episode out if you've not already done so and you are a relatively new listener to the series. Do go and check that out because it does explain a lot more about their stronghold and how things were working in the background while these boxers were getting in the ring. Now, thankfully for Fenn, the mob's advances were not as forcible and he was able to continue working with Zora Foley without looking over his shoulder. In Foley's next bout, once more at the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles on June the 23rd, 1955, he took on Johnny Summerline, who was 24-4-2, who was no pushover. Now, the Detroit fighter was one of very few men that could say he had gone the distance with Sonny Liston. Not once, but twice. He had also knocked out Charlie Powell and decision state champ young Jack Johnson, both from California before taking on the other top contender in Arizona, Sorafole. Now the fight did not go as expected. The United Press described the action and they wrote, Foley was sent crashing to the canvas in the first round with an overhand right for a nine count. He rallied to win the second, third and fourth rounds but in the sixth, Summerlin caught him with a wicked left. Now that, le- ha- that left hand prompted his corner, fearing his jaw had been broken, to throw in the towel. Now Fenn recalled to Christopher James Shelton, that, as in that fight, was a mistake. Foley was not quite ready for him. And Bill Swift agreed with Fenn and he said, We brought up Zora too fast. He wasn't quite ready for Summerlin, who at the time was a really stiff puncher. Sounds like a, a very good fighter, in fact. The fact that he went the distance twice to Sunny Liston, I honestly don't think there are many, barring uh, Muhammad Ali. Um, that is impressive, it really is. Uh, 
and unfortunately, you know, it's what happens. They get rushed into these fights, and then you have it. You know, Summerlin, a guy that people may not recall, but, you know, fought twice with Sonny Liston and, and defeated Zora Foley in his first ever defeat in his boxing career. Um, so there you go. Undeterred, uh, now 24 years old, Foley reeled off a three knockout wins over a guy called Jack Gerald, Ted Callerman, and Reuben Wilson but fell to his second professional defeat against the USA California state heavyweight, young Jack Johnson, who was 10-5-1. Now, Foley was willing to fight handsomely until he absorbed a heavy body shot in the fifth. He was actually already carrying a rib injury from a sparring session before the fight, and the ringside doctor actually decided to halt the action before Foley because Foley had suspected broken ribs. Foley recalled the stoppage and he said, when I started getting hit on the side, a sharp pain would go through my body. It got to the point where I could hardly breathe. I had to ask my corner to stop it. Now, one thing we have not mentioned about Zora Foley was that if he had have competed into today's boxing game, he would have actually have been a cruiserweight. He actually never tipped the scales over the 200 pound heavyweight limit until his 30s. So when he took on Johnson, he was actually giving away 20 pounds in weight, plus carrying, obviously, that rib injury and then the body shots took effect. And that's why Jack Johnson, uh, eventually, young Jack Johnson, won that fight. But on a side note, another side note, young Jack Johnson actually died eight years later from fatal stab wounds inflicted by his stepdaughter. Wow. Uh, I know. Um, we'll definitely uh, one to look, 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 have a look at and see if we can uh, bring some materials I don't, I don't think there's gonna be much out there but we definitely one we'll investigate um and it was back to drawing board for zora foley in 1956 he did reel off three straight knockout victories before collecting his first title the first title was the south western heavyweight title when he outpointed roger rizza at madison square garden in phoenix in his next fight, Foley won a unanimous decision over Nino Valdez in their September the 9th, 1956 bout at the Softball Park in Phoenix. The judges gave the Cuban heavyweight, who held wins over former champion Ezard Charles and British champion Don Coquel, only one of the ten rounds. And Fenn said, The fight against Valdez was the big one. This is what placed Foley on the national map. That was indeed the case because Foley found himself on his first televised bout in his next fight, and he got a split decision win over Wayne Beatha. He won the rematch on national television once again by split decision in January of 1957, and finished the year with 10 more victories, 7 within the distance. By 1958, the Ring magazine labelled Zora Foley as a man to be reckoned with, and he was now the top-ranked contender for the heavyweight title owned by Floyd Patterson. With a record of 38-2-1, Foley should have been given the opportunity to fight Patterson for the world title, but his trainer and manager, Custy Amato, had no intentions of ever giving a legitimate and worthy challenger a shot at the world title. Now we have gone into detail about this on Custy Amato's career profile. Nigel Collins, the former editor of The Ring magazine, placed the sole blame on Floyd by saying... Patterson avoided all the good fighters, especially Foley. But with the perspective of time, we now know that it was actually Cust to blame for this fight not happening in 1958. Foley addressed his own assumptions with Mark Cranzinia of Sports Illustrated years later and he said, if Floyd had given me the shot, 
I would have been champion years ago. But he was afraid of me. He kept dodging me. And I was out in the bushes. It would seem like it was always another year or two of just hoping and waiting. And little fights. Always little fights in small towns. And yeah, that that is definitely for me where Zora should have been given a shot. 1958, 1959. I think he had Floyd's number. When you look at it on paper, for me, 100% he would have been a world champion. And his name would have been a lot more established than it is today. People would people remember Floyd Patterson. They don't necessarily remember Zora Foley. And I think this is why we wanted to do this as well as the fact that there is a grizzly ending to the whole thing. But... The fact is, Zora deserved that chance. He didn't get it. That was boxing in them days. And the crazy thing was, it wasn't the colour line. If you think about it, the colour line was all before that. This time you got Floyd Patterson, who is, you know, he, he holds the world title, but he's, he's, he's white manager. That's refusing him fighting all the big names, like Sonny Liston's, Eddie Machen, who we men- mentioned soon, and Zora Foley. Uh, it's just the way it was. But the collection of an avoidance from Team Patterson and a lack of financial support from his now skint manager who was bill swift meant risks had to be taken for less reward swift also spoke to the reporter mark cram senior and he said i was broke and i tried to get a job but because of my name and my family's reputation for wealth nobody believed me there were times when the purses for zora's fights helped me to support my family perhaps if my finances had have been better we would not have taken some of those fights and it would have saved the losses as it was i took fights we didn't need all of this didn't help his career but zora never reproached me the third reason for the lack of opportunities for foley was due to his boxing style where today he may have been more appreciated uh, the box your head off approach was not a fan f- as fan friendly as the knock your head off approach back then Murray Goodman explained this in Boxing and Wrestling magazine. He said, Foley is a quiet man by nature and doesn't seem to have the capacity for anger and emotion that makes the fighter with the so-called killer instinct. To help solve the publicity problems, Swift enlisted the help of Jeb Rosebrook. Now, he was an ad manager for the Diamonds Department store in Phoenix, which was owned by a guy called John Robinson, who was also a writer for the King Features Syndicate when he moved to Arizona from New York in 1958. Now, Rosebrook said the deal with Swift was that if he got enough publicity for Zora to get a title fight with Patterson, then they would work out a percentage. So Rosebrook has brought in because of the publicity situation. They're trying to obviously encourage the fight and, and force cast into a position where he has to give him the fight he's high in the rankings he's not getting his chance and now they need rosebrook to give a bit more publicity now rosebrook spoke of his opinions on the fighter he was trying to sell to the public saying he was not an outgoing guy or the kind of person to tell jokes or even laugh that much he was the kind of same person he was as a fighter and whatever was going on in his mind stayed there Foley confirmed Rosebrook assessment when he told Mark Cram in 1967 and he said, I keep my irritations well hid. They're covered up way down deep and I guess that's where they belong. Now the number two contender for Patterson's crown, Foley's 42nd professional fight was a title eliminator against another avoided heavyweight and then number one contender, Adimation, who was 24-0. 
But with so much at stake, neither fighter took the initiative, so they cancelled each other out, and the Associated Press wrote, most of the 11,759 crowd, which paid a gross of $95,755 to watch the goings-on at the Cow Palace, booed lustly at the dull action. The fight actually ended as a draw, which promoted the former heavyweight champion Joe Lewis to make this post-fight comment, and he said, It was a terrible fight. Machen wasn't sharp and Foley weakened. Following the poor performance, Foley recorded two back-to-back victories before travelling to London to face Henry Cooper on October the 14th, 1958. But despite knocking Cooper down in the third round and had him bleeding badly in the last two rounds, he was outpointed over the 10-round distance. So distraught with the, the decision, Foley and Al Feng cried robbery. They blamed referee Tommy Little. Foley said he kept telling me to watch my head. He worried me every round. The loss to Cooper dropped Foley from the number one spot in the heavyweight rankings to number three. His team needed another direction to gain Foley some much-needed exposure. And Rosebrook decided to make a pitch to NBC's The Today Show uh, to have Foley on air, giving the host a boxing lesson. Rosebrook was actually pleased with the move, but it failed to deliver uh, the predicted outcome. In his own words, he said it it was a good idea and a a little out of the box for its time. But then Patterson knocked out Ingemar Johansson in June of 1959 and that put a dampener on things. We had to wait another year before they fought a second and third, both of which Patterson won. If television wasn't going to bring Foley a title shot and hopefully his performances in the ring would. He didn't lose another fight after the Cooper defeat for almost two years. His record now stood at 49-3-2 when an incident occurred outside the ring. The uh, press, uh, United Press wrote on Boxing Day of 1959 that Foley had been arrested and jailed by Phoenix police after his car was involved in a minor accident. The passenger in the other car sustained minor injuries but did not require hospitalisation. Foley was charged with drunk and reckless driving charge. He actually spent several hours sleeping off the booze, but was finally released on a $300 bail. Now, by January 18th, 1960, Foley was back in the ring against his old foe, Eddie Machen, who was now 31-1-1, and after 12 rounds, he managed to take a unanimous decision. But like the first encounter, it was a drab affair and Foley's performance was further hindered from tonsillitis. Rosebrook recalled, it was probably the dullest fight ever televised. The audience kept wondering who was going to throw the first punch. That fight really hurt Zora's reputation. Albeit that win over Machen catapulted Foley up the rankings and one fight away from a world title shot. The opponent he had to overcome was one of the most feared heavyweights in boxing history and the subject of our inaugural Dark Side of Boxing episode it was of course Sonny Liston who at the time was 29-1. and The fight took place at the Denver Coliseum with Liston entering the ring as the number one ranked fighter in the world and Foley ranked number two by the Ring Magazine and number three by the National Boxing Association. Foley was guaranteed $40,000 and... Liston, who had his own publicity problems, was guaranteed $25,000. He accepted the smaller fee just to make the fight. The Associated Press wrote about this fight and said, Sonny Sonny Liston swinging his sledgehammer fists 
with devastating fury knocked out Zora Foley in 28 seconds of the third round after battering him to the canvas twice in the second of their scheduled 12-round heavyweight fight last night. After the fight, Sonny Liston said, I figured he'd run. In that second round, though, he was throwing them all good. I think he hits the target better than Patterson. Well, after that morale-crushing defeat, Murray Goodman in boxing and wrestling again he summed up the once potential heavyweight champion from this point on he said it appeared almost certain that foley was to be just another heavyweight opponent he dropped in the ratings and he dropped in ambition it was fight to fight from now on moving wherever there was a decent payday those were harsh words about a fighter that was avoided for so long and had some contentious losses against his name so over the next seven years, the man Boxing Illustrated once called Arizona's Machine the Box remained in the rankings with a workmanlike but unspectacular performances. Two victories followed the list of defeat, but he fell to his fifth professional loss against Alejandro Lavarante, who was 12-1. and one. The Long Beach Press-Telegram recorded that the Argentinian battler broke out of his shell in the sixth round and floored Foley twice. They continued. Lavarante quickly dropped him in the, for the third time, again with a right hand. As Zora regained his feet, Lavarante shot a short right and left to the head that toppled him and the referee didn't bother to count. From August 1961 to the end of 1962, Foley managed to rejuvenate himself and won nine fights on the spin with impressive triumphs over Bob Clarou, who he actually defeated again in 1963, and Doug Jones. And the most notable dispatchment of all was our Henry Cooper at the Empire Pool in London. Now, in one of the best knockouts you will ever see, the Associated Press described the action and they wrote, Cooper was reeling after the first round and bleeding freely from cuts over his left eye and on his forehead. Foley was right on top of him when the second round began and it ended all with a crashing right hook to the jaw. Cooper got up to one knee just as the count reached 10. Henry Cooper, of course, we've done a career profile on him and he said, I never even saw it coming. After a solid performance on foreign soil, Foley would be left disappointed once again when he lost by knockout to Doug Jones in their rematch and then suffered a points loss to Ernie Terrell. On the brighter side, those two defeats were the only blemishes on his record from 1962, all the way up until 1967. During that period, Foley defeated some genuine challengers to the heavyweight crown. The first of those was when he outpointed George Chevalo in Cleveland. Afterwards, Foley received a telegram from Sonny Liston while he was training for his upcoming title defence against a young Cassius Clay, aka Muhammad Ali, and it read, Love to give you a title shot, but have a previous engagement in Miami Beach. Get a few more wins, and I would be glad to meet you. I'm sure he would have done it if he'd have managed to defeat the Brash Ali, but as we know now, that never happened. So Foley, well, he kept working his way through the contenders. One of those was the undefeated Oscar Bonavina, who was actually only 8-0 at the time at Madison Square Garden in New York. The Associated Press again wrote that Foley floored the bald, the bull-necked youngster in the eighth round, staggering him in two other rounds and one from here to Buenos Aires, taking a unanimous decision. Foley called out Patterson after the victory. I'd like to fight Patterson next. I know Patterson 
wants to fight once more while waiting for the outcome of Clay Liston fight, I'm more than willing. The winner could get the title fight next. Well, Foley then got a decision in 1965 over the future light heavyweight champion Bob Foster, 21-3, and in his next fight. Again, the Associated Press explained it, and they said that the veteran Foley, who is now 33, who hoped for a heavyweight title shot, finally forgot his caution in the final round and had the lighter Foster staggering when the bell rang. By 1967, Muhammad Ali was now the world heavyweight champion, and Zora Foley had compiled a respectable career record of 74 wins, 40 by way of knockout, only seven losses and four draws in one of the toughest eras in heavyweight boxing history. After the 25-year-old Muhammad Ali, 28-0, had humiliated Ernie Terrell over 15 rounds in that famous fight for when Ali kept screaming, what's my name? A great fight while pounding away on Terrell at the Houston Astrodome on February 6, 1967. Ali then told the Associated Press his next fight will either be Zora Foley or George Tavalo, but I'm sure it's Foley. I think Foley can put up a better fight than Terrell. He's a better boxer. Foley was in confident mood when he told a reporter after the Tell- Terrell fight, I can beat Ali. I saw plenty of openings. The fight was officially announced on Valentine's Day. Muhammad Ali confirmed it would take place at Madison Square Garden on March the 22nd. It was the Garden's first heavyweight title fight since Azar Charles battered Leoma in 1951. Mark Graham Sr., again for Sports Illustrated, described Foley's rise through the heavyweight ranks as almost ghost-like, and he said Zora Foley has been in 85 fights, but few are aware that Zora has ever been near a ring, or for that matter, that he even exists. Foley was known as a dangerous opponent throughout his career, but only within boxing circles, hence why it took him so long to finally get a title shot. It was also an unkept secret that he could do a lot of damage with his best weapon being the short, powerful right hand. His trainer, Johnny Hart, said this of his right hand, It's the closest thing to a mule's kick that I've ever seen. He just takes it back and whoomp, he pops it in there. It was a handsome payday for both. Even with the draft exclusion hovering over Ali, he actually collected about $260,000 on his 50% of the net gate and then $150,000 from ancillary rights. Foley earned his largest purse of about $58,000 on the 15% of the net and $25,000 from the ancillaries. Now the fight was broadcast in more than 150 cities around the world. It was also shown in Canada, Japan, Mexico and parts of Europe. But New York City, well that was blacked out. <laughs> well, before the fight, there was no animosity shown, uh, just respect by both of them. Foley went as far as showing his support to Ali for not going to the Vietnam War on religious beliefs. He said, I don't think he's a slacker. That's his religion. I've met several people that way, some Jehovah Witnesses. I can tell, I can tell you about my religion. I'm a Baptist. But I don't judge the next guy. If he wants to be called Muhammad Ali and says that's his name, I'll call him that. At a press conference, one of Ali's entourages tried to provoke a reaction from Foley, asking him, what's his name? While sitting between the champion and Foley, Muhammad Ali, replied Foley, without hesitation. Ali replied, thank you, brother. That Foley's such a nice, sweet old man. (laughs) Eight little kids. Calls me Muhammad Ali. Thanks me all the time for giving him a chance. How am I ever going to get mad at him and build up this fight? 
George Nadal, mayor of Chandler, Arizona, agreed with Arlie's description and how marketable Foley would be if he could actually do the unthinkable and beat Muhammad Ali and become the heavyweight champion. He said it's he's the only heavyweight champion you'd put on the back of a Wheaties box if he wins. Even when, even when Foley did speak on his chances against Ali, he said it in such a respectful way, in a professional manner. He said, everyone knows I've been a top contender for the last 10 years. The top man always ducked me. I am glad to have a man of the caliber of Muhammad Ali who will fight all the contenders. I'm very confident that come May 22nd, you will have a new champion. Before Foley's departure from Chandler to New York City, the whole community rallied around Foley with more, when more than 300 residents showed up for a gala dinner on March the 1st. The event was billed as the Zora Foley Appreciation Dinner. Oh, it's a bit late by then, isn't it? <laughs> JC President <laughs> Russell Jennings served as Master of Ceremonies and Chandler Mayor George Nadar was the main speaker with all the proceeds going to a local youth programme. Foley, who was accompanied by his wife Joella, was presented with a brand new wristwatch. To prepare for Ali, Foley brought in a young new heavyweight who would become a heavyweight champion 10 years later, and that was a certain Ken Norton, who paid his respects to Foley, and he said, He helped me quite a bit when I was starting out. Sora was a very good man, and was more helpful to me than any other fighter I worked with. Mark Cram Sr. made his prediction on the Ali Foley fight, and he said, Zora's defence is good, but when he is caught with a volley of combinations, his offence is nullified and he goes into a shell and covers. Unless he changes his style, Foley should be in a shell for most of the night, which will consist of, say, six or seven rounds. The 34-year-old challenger outpointed Ali in the first two rounds, though many observers said that Ali was playing around. Ali adamantly stated afterwards, I was not carrying him. He was a better fighter than Sonny Liston, Floyd Patterson or Ernie Terrell. He was a slick, tricky, and a good boxer. Well, Mark Cram reported on the the fight for Sports Illustrated, and here's what he wrote from round three. He said it wasn't until the third round that Ali began working. His straight left hands, not his jab, kept snapping Foley's head back, and these were the punches that started Foley on his way out. Mark Cram continued on the finish. He said in the fourth, Ali now punching flat-footed, spun Foley around with a left hook and then banged a right hand behind the ear. Foley went down. He was flat on his stomach and then suddenly he was up, his nose streaming blood, and he was kneeling and looking to his corner for the count. Foley raged back, but he had left too much of himself on the floor. Ali, it appeared, carried Foley in the fifth and sixth rounds, but going into the seventh Herbert Mohammed, his manager, told him to stop playing. He did. Two rights, the first of which travelled roughly six inches, gave Ali his 29th straight victory and his ninth successful title defence. Foley described when he went down, when he was knocked down to Sports Illustrated on April 10th, 1967. He said, the first time I went down, I wasn't hurt, but I didn't know what had happened. Suddenly, I become aware of the noise and then I saw Ali standing over me and I figured I was down. So I wheeled around to look at my corner to find out the count. I kept thinking, was that a right hand he hit me with? So what did he do? But he hit me with the same punch again in the seventh round and knocked me out. I can't believe it. But that's what he did. 
And there's some absolutely brilliant footage of this particular fight in, in clear HD quality on YouTube. So please do go and check back on it if you if you want to follow Muhammad Ali and Zora Foley's careers. Very, very, really good, high quality, high quality video footage on there. Now, Zora the third, his son, was sat at ringside with all the stars. But when he witnessed his dad's defeat, he reminisced and he said, When you see your father get knocked down, it's more than just a boxing match. It was devastated. The teenager cried and Ali came over to comfort him, putting his arms around the young man and telling him, What are you crying about? Your father is a great fighter. A man doesn't have to win a fight to be a champion. Foley had no excuses and he also gave a very in-depth assessment on his conqueror and he said, This guy has a style all his own. It's far ahead of any fighters today. How could Dempsey, Tunney or any of them keep up? Lewis wouldn't have had a chance. He was too slow. Marciano couldn't get to him and would never get away from Ali's jab. There's just no way to train yourself for what he does. The moves, the speed, the punches and the way he changes his style every time you think you've got him figured. The right hands Ali hit me with just had no business landing. But they did. They came from nowhere. Many times he was in the wrong position but he hit me anyway. I've never seen anyone who could do that. The knockdown punch was so fast that I never saw it. He has lots of snap and when the punches land... They dizzy your head. They fuzz up your mind. He's smart. The trickiest fighter I've ever seen. He's had 29 fights and he acts like he's had 100. He could write the book on boxing and anyone that fights him should be made to read it. <laughs> That's brilliant. Absolutely great words, that, from Zora Foley. And, and if anyone uh, ever doubted Muhammad Ali's ability, then there you go. Uh, Zora Foley, I know he's like 34, whatever he is, mid-30s now. You know, they did say as well, if it was 10 years earlier, who knows? I think even Angelo Dundee said, like, you know, 10 years, a decade before, and we would have would have had some trouble with Zora. But Ali proving how much of a great fight he was. Obviously, we know he goes off after this. That was his last professional fight until he has the exile. So um, two completely different routes, which we'll find out in a minute. And over the following three years, Foley went 5-3-2. Uh, and on, on September 29th, 1970 was actually knocked down five times and stopped in the first round by a guy who wouldn't have even been worthy to tie his bootlaces a decade earlier, a guy called Mac Foster. The defeat left a bad taste in the ring magazine's mouth, as with many boxers in these days. Uh, they wrote, matches of this sort are not good for the game of boxing and should not be countenanced. That kind of a cream for a heavyweight is bad for business all round. In a career that lasted 17 years, 96 fights, 79 wins, 10 losses and 6 draws, Zora Foley will go down in our eyes as one of the era's most distinguished heavyweight boxers to never win a heavyweight title. Angelo Dundee echoed our thoughts when he called Zora Foley one heck of a fighter. So now with boxing career behind him, Foley found employment as a salesman in a truck division at the uh, Randall Chevrolet. Although his new bosses were at, at first, they were unsure about taking him on. A guy called Frank C, uh, then truck sales manager of Randolph, actually recalled the moment. He said, I told him he wasn't qualified, that he was too nice a guy. But I saw a little bit of a spark. I saw that he was determined. I laid it on him. And I told him that he'd be up against it and we let him try. The lot were hoping that Foley would use his celebrity status to help them and himself complete deals. 
but they refused to gain commission for a sale in that manner. At the time, Frank Say said, we've tried to motivate him to use his reputation to his advantage. If he did, he'd be doing three times as much business. Foley told an Associated Press reporter that just wasn't his way of conducting business and he said, I don't growl, if that's what they mean. If you take someone away from their own personality, I think that's phony. I do things my way. After agreeing to enrol on a course to help him improve his sales pitch, he began to make a success of it. He was averaging 30 sales a month and was making $24,000 a year, which in today's equivalent is just under $170,000 a year. Within a year after boxing, Foley was now an established salesman, a respected ex-professional boxer, and he even improved his credibility in the community when he became counsellor with the Chandler Career Centre and participated in the Migrant Opportunity Programme. In January 1971, Foley was urged to run in the Chandler City Councilman election. He told the Chandler Arizonan, I have lived there since I was 10 years old and I'm proud to live in Chandler. I have represented Chandler all over the world for the last 20 years in the sport of boxing. I don't box anymore, but would like to represent Chandler as a city councilman. Now, initially, Foley was not voted in one of the free seats available, but when Everett Jones had to pull out because of a family issue, Foley was the next in line to fill the void. Zora Foley was actually sworn in by the city magistrate, Coy Beasley, on April 27, 1972. The photo of Foley raising his right hand to take oath of the office would be his very last picture in public. Now, it was during this time that Foley made an unusual friend in artiste Hudson Broom, a hanger-on, claimed a Chandler resident. He was a guy that Foley had known for many years, and their army backgrounds must have formed the basis of their friendship, according to Robert Foley, his son. He also recalled that Broom was a guy who liked hanging around my dad because he was exciting. I remember bumping into him when he was in his 50s and he could not look me in the eye. I didn't care much for the man. Broom was in no way as distinguished for his service in the military as the war hero Zora Foley. He didn't even make it through one year until he was discharged. Artis Broom was also a bigamist. He actually had two wives on the go. Uh, they were in different state, that, but they were in different state marriages. One was in Arizona, one was in Nevada, uh, so they didn't connect it to police. So obviously, they didn't recognise it was a bigamist with two wives. According to the Mary, Maricopa County Recorder, artiste lived with one wife Ura in Chandler and the other and the other wife Dorothy in Tucson. Now it was on the night of July the seventh, nineteen seventy-two. That Zora Foley and his supposed mysterious and young had checked into room 219 at 9pm under an alias of William Fountain at the Sands Motor Hotel in Tucson, Arizona. The couple were later accompanied by Artis and Dorothy Broom. Now according to a police report, Zora and Artis were engaging in horseplay near the motel pool when an accident occurred. Tucson Police Sergeant Lyle Murphy confirmed this with the Associated Press on July the 9th, 1972. He, as in Foley and Broom, were goofing off at a late hour to see who was going to throw who in the water with his clothes on. A motel clerk then told police that one of the women ran into the office and said that Foley had been badly hurt. An Associated Press article then wrote, an ambulance was called and Foley was taken to the Pima County Hospital where he underwent emergency surgery. 
But at 1am, July the 8th, Zora Foley, at the age of 41, had died from his injuries. The motel clerk who wanted to remain anonymous explained the extent of Foley's injuries to the Arizona Daily Star, saying he had a large bump on his forehead, a hole on the top of his head, and another wound on the back of his head. Three blows in total. You would assume that he would have suffered just one from an accidental fall, which made his death the subject to many conspiracy theories for the next 40 years, which is something we're about to delve into. Foley's brother-in-law, Willie Artbuckle, explained what he had heard. From what I understand, the pool had a diving wall between the kiddie and the adult sections. And when Broom pushed him, Zora tried to make a dive out for it and he hit his head on the diving wall. Robert Foley suspected foul play from the outset. I've always thought something was inconsistent about his death and it's always upset me. Zora Foley's funeral took place at the United Methodist Church on Williamsfield Road in China on Wednesday, July 12th. Mayor Raul Navarati and members of the Chandler City Council joined wife Joella, sons Zora III, Robert, Jeffrey, Jack and daughters Denise, Mabel, Francine, Tanya, Foley's sisters, uh, Mary Francis Sullivan of Dallas and uh, co-managers Bill Swift and Al Fenn, plus hundreds of Chandler community, plus hundreds of the Chandler community paid their final respects. Muhammad Ali was actually due to intend as well, but he, he didn't show up, unfortunately. I'm not quite sure what happened there, but he, didn't, he, he wasn't able to make it. So military rights were conducted at Foley's graveside in Mesa Cemetery, Mesa, Arizona. His headstone was actually paid for by the US government for Foley's military service. Joella Foley never spoke on record about her husband's death, and she politely refused an interview with author and journalist Marshall Terrell when writing his book on Zora Foley, The Distinguished Life Mysterious Death of a Gentleman Boxer. So first and foremost, you're thinking to yourself, what the hell has happened? Like, mm-hmm. initially, it seems like a bit of an accident. He's, he's, they've been fooling around, as it said, and he's, he's fell in, he's hit his head. But then, you know, the, the, the witnesses were stating that he had three separate injuries on his head. And it was like, hmm, seems a little bit suspicious straight away. And then obviously the funeral takes place. Uh, and then obviously there's more investigations to come over, over the coming years after this. Now, former Chandler Vice Mayor and Police Officer at the time of Zora Foley's death, Lowell Huggins, made his feelings known when he said, I've never felt comfortable with the facts surrounding Zora's death, and I still feel uncomfortable. While on duty, Huggins heard about his late friend's death on the police scanner and made the 100-mile round trip from Chandler to Tucson on that very night to investigate the crime scene. He was refused access because he was from a different county, which was not uncommon. The autopsy and police report officially ruled Zora Foley's death as an accident. But this is where things get really interesting. Dr Bruce Parks, a former chief medical examiner for the Pima Office of Medical Examiners, told Marshall Turrell in 2003 when he was requesting a copy of the police report, We think they were in our archives and on a list to be destroyed. It was standard policy for old records to be deleted after a certain length of time. Tucson police said that they did not know if the police report had been destroyed or was stored somewhere on a microfile. 
but the records division said her report number would have been generated under the autopsy report, but those accounts were missing or presumably destroyed. Well, so that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you got you're trying to he's trying to get to the bottom of it. You know, you need the police report, you need the autopsy report. So to get an idea of what exactly has happened, you know, he's dead. He's got three blows in the head. If he fell in, why has he got three blows? Well, there's so many holes in the case and conspiracy theories have circulated among the Chandler and the boxing communities, as you said, for the last 40 years. Now, one of the most popular was that Zora Foley was actually murdered by the mob, which does seem very unlikely considering his friendly reputation and non-involvement with figures from the underworld during his boxing career. But Tuxen was well-known retreat for mafia villains like Joseph Bonanno Sr., Peter Licavoli Sr., Mo Dollis, Peter Nataro and James J., a.k.a. Bats or Batagila. Well, uh, these, these chaps knocked him out in Tuxen. Not too long before Foley's suspicious death, Tuxen was actually rocked by a series of bombings in 1968 at the homes of all those organised crime figures and one beauty salon. One highly placed law enforcement officer in Tuxen said, this is obviously a case of retaliation involving mafia warfare between Bonanno family members and those who oppose him in Tuxen. The bombings were done for intimidation as a way of saying they can go further. In fear of more trouble spilling onto the streets and innocent people getting killed, US Republican Morris Udall asked for FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover to assign more agents in Tucson to fight against organised crime. Now, this theory is further ingrained to the death of Zora Foley after a magazine reported in 1972, not long after his death, that two suspicious men were at the scene of his death that night. Further fire has been added to the fuel because of the suspicious deaths of two other boxers, Sonny Liston on December 30th, 1970, and a month after Foley's death, Eddie Machen, who actually fell from the second-story apartment window in San Francisco. Could all three have been murdered by the mob, or were all three deaths down to the tormented souls of boxers who fought in a brutal generation? It's a very good question. I'm pretty sure you guys listening, I'm pretty sure you will have your own assumptions so far with this but we'll head on further into investigations now nigel collins then editor of the ring magazine thinks that racism played its part because of a lack of further investigation from the authorities now he said in 2003 it could be that maybe to the white establishment the death of a black man wasn't a big deal i think racism could have played a role in that there wasn't a full investigation now, after Marshall Terrell had completed his newspaper series on Sora Foley, he always carried that nagging feeling that there was more information out there. So, ten years on, he began to piece the puzzle together. He spoke with the former Chandler police officer and vice mayor at the time, Lowell Huggins again, who was now retired. Feeling more comfortable about being able to elaborate on his version of events, he said, Sora Foley did not slip and fall and hit his head on the side of the pool. He was the most coordinated man I ever met. I boxed with him, worked with him, and that story is just plain false. Artie's Bloom, for whatever reasons, killed Zora Foley, 
The only answer I don't know is why he killed Zora. Now Huggins isn't the only person that believes this. Other sources have indicated that Foley was more interested in Artie's wife and in a jealous rage he killed Foley. But how does an average Joe who stood on a six foot tall dispatch of Zora Foley who had only left the ring two years earlier? Armed with information from Huggins and the wisdom from Bobby Joe Harris, another former policeman who rose through the ranks to become Chandler's chief of police in 1994, Marshall began to go over old ground. And he began with the archived articles on Foley's death, which was printed in many of the major newspapers, but it was the Arizona Daily Star who printed on July 10, 1972, that the Pima County pathologist's official report on Zora Foley's death had been delayed and will not be released until Wednesday, July 12. But that was the day of Zora Foley's funeral. And maybe for that reason, the autopsy report did not make it into the public domain. Trouble was, the report did not seem to have ever been released and nor was it ever mentioned again. Now, Bobby Joe Harris offered his explanation. He said access to the public information was hit and miss in those days. I'm not sure what the public information policy of Tucson PD was in 1972. I don't think Arizona even had a public information laws at that time. He then continued. He said the Foley incident was sort of a scandal and the media did not hit on those sorts of stories as they do now. Plus the powers that be were more protective of it. It's also possible that another story might have popped up and became a bigger priority. He then asked questions on Foley's presumed mistress. Uh, Who was Anne Young and was she a friend of Dorothy Broome or was she really Zora Foley's bit on the side? Al Fenn told Christopher James Shelton it was the latter. I guess Foley was stepping out on his wife, Fenn confirmed. I believe that the men began with horseplay trying to impress the women. I hear the talk that Foley was murdered. They say it was the husband or boyfriend of one of the women that found him, became jealous and whacked him. Now, Jeb Rosebrook told Marshall Terrell in 2013, in July 1972, I got a phone call from my former boss, John Robinson, informing that Zara was dead. He told me that Zora was down in Tucson to meet an old friend and they started wrestling around when Zora slipped and fell and hit his head near the pool. John also told me that Zora was getting a divorce. Knowing Zora had nine kids with his wife Joella, the information came as a bit of a shock. Now Marshall tried to track down Ann Young for an interview, but after finding who he thought may have been the correct person, he received no response. His next move was to make inquiries about the missing pathology report and to his astonishment... It was suddenly available. On September the 26th, 2013, Marshall was sent a PDF version. And this is what the coroner, Edward Brooker, wrote. Zora Foley was pronounced dead by Dr. G. Reed at 1am July 8th, 1972. Then Foley's corpse was transported at 3.45am by ANS coach service from Pima County Hospital to the office of the coroner's pathologist on Pennington Street. The apparent type of death was recorded as natural, not accidental, with a comment that also said, fell down by pool and hit head. Under cause of death, Bruckner listed cerebral concussion, cerebral relating to the head, 
our brain and the concussion defined in the dictionary as a temporary loss of consciousness caused by a hard hit on the head. Bruckner even sketched four diagrams of all four sides of Zora Foley's head which indicated that the fatal trauma occurred at the lower back of his skull. Just the single blow to the head, not the three that was mentioned earlier. There you go. Uh, the pathology report says one injury and that was just to the back of the head. That's it. It sort of does move away from the fact that what the paper printed saying that it was it was that, that some a witness had identified three marks on the head. Um, there you go. Obviously, we need to move on, though, because he still needs eyewitnesses. And well, after the blood and urine and bile tests were actually conducted, traces of alcohol were actually identified as well. But he was only just over the state limit of 0.17. Therefore, the story of Foley falling into the pool and hitting his head would seem to be genuine. But without those eyewitness statements to the police report, that was the main thing that that made it that would make it more conclusive. And it wasn't conclusive enough. With Anne Young not willing to go on record, an artist deceased since 1997, Marshall attempted to track down his two other wives, who were Aura and Dorothy Broom. He got one, an interview with Dorothy on June 2nd, 2014. And this is her account of what happened that night. I remember we had met them, Zora and Anne Young, over at the Sands and had dinner there. At the time I was pregnant and we were sitting on the veranda or the lounge at the swimming pool. Zora and Artis were in the swimming pool and horsing around. Zora went to dive and there was some sort of divider in the pool, a cement divider. When he jumped in, he hit his head on that piece of cement divider, whatever that was in the pool. When Marshall asked Dorothy to confirm that Zora had in fact dove in to the swimming pool himself and not got pushed by Artis, she said, he dove in by himself no he didn't get pushed he dove in by himself they had been playing around they were in the water already she then went on to say it was a complete accident a terrible accident i'll never forget her as long as i live dorothy then described how artists pulled foley out of the pool and they called for help wow so an actual eyewitness account of the incident occurring which seems to dispel the theories around whether the mob were involved or whether Artis had actually committed a crime here and whether it was down to a, a jealous a jealous husband that, you know, Zara Foley had been playing around with his wife. But there's more. There's more to this story. After Marshall Terrell had his interview with Dorothy Broom, he began his needle in a haystack search at the Arizona State Library for the police report. He was notified by the Tucson Police Department that the report might be in the Arizona Daily Star newspaper and their records will be in the library. Marshall was given all the Tucson Police reports from 1972, which was over 100 microfilm reels, with each one taking about four hours to read through. Feeling so close to cracking the case, he persevered until June the 4th, 2014, when he finally found the supplemental report. It revealed that Officer Lena was the first policeman to arrive at the scene, and this is what he wrote a little more than an hour after Zora Foley had been officially pronounced dead at the hospital. Witness A, as in Artis Broom, stated that he and the victim have been friends since he was 16 years old. Mr Broom and his wife Dorothy went to the Sands Hotel to see the victim. Stated victim was swimming in the pool. Victim and witness had a few drinks, and victim tried to throw Broom in the pool with his clothes on. 
Victim and Broom were pushing each other and Victim, who was wet, fell back into the pool, striking his head on the side of it. Broom jumped into the pool and pulled the Victim out. And the report continued, notified Dr Edward Bruckner, due to pathologist, at 1.28am on July the 8th. Sergeant McDaniels was supervisor to arrive at hospital and notified Lieutenant Johnson of details. Talks with Mrs Broom and witness B and Young confirmed Mr Broom's story. Mr Broom notified victim's wife and sister in my presence. No further information. What do you say to that? Well, well, I mean, the first thing is it's slightly different, isn't it, to Dorothy's. The fact she said they were in the pool and now... You know, here's a version of events is they weren't in the pool and he fell backwards from the side. So he wasn't diving. There's a bit of contradiction. You know, it's, it, it contradicts itself slightly, but that we'll move on. The, the, the supplemental report that was filed on July 11, 1972, contained further information from Sergeant Wolf, who was the first detec- detective from the Tucson Police Dispatch to the Sands. And he noted his arrival at 11pm on July 8, a full 24 hours later. Now, after speaking with the hotel manager, Keith Hanlin, who advised Wolf that the clerk on duty at the time of Foley's death was Manuel Franco. He told Wolf that he had started his shift at 11pm and 45 minutes later, he received the call from room 219, who identified himself as Artie's broom. He asked if he could buy a pair of trunks so he could go swimming. Franco advised that the pool was closed and no, they don't sell swimming trunks. Not long after, Franco went to check on the pool area when he saw Foley wearing a pair of swimming trunks and broom now wearing a cut pair of blue jeans. Franco then reiterated that the pool was closed before going back to the front desk. Moments later, Dorothy Broom and Young rushed into the front desk and told Franco that an accident had occurred. Franco immediately called for an ambulance and the police. Interestingly, this was the same clerk that wanted to remain anonymous when he told the Arizona Daily Start a month later that Foley had sustained three blows to the head, yet he failed to mention that part to Sergeant Wolf. Unfortunately, Franco passed away in 2004, nine years before Marshall gathered this vital bit of information. So there's still a bit of a spider's web going on here because you've got contradicting reports, eyewitness reports, and now you've got a clerk who's 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 told. The, the Arizona Daily Star, that there were three blows. And unfortunately, Marshall Terrell, when doing his investigations into this, was not able to get it because he'd passed away. So now it makes you wonder, actually, you know, what, what was he covering up? Was he scared to, to report? Was there something else going on here? It certainly feels like there's a little bit more surrounding this. It feels like maybe this was an accident that was covered up. And we'll continue on. Now, Sergeant Wolf turned the investigation over to Detective M. Rayner of the Tucson Police on July the 12th, 1972. He asked Sergeant Gomez of Mesa Police Department to interview Ann Young and ascertain what type of relationship existed between her and Mr. Foley and whether or not they had been registered under the name of Fountain in the room. Two days later, Ann Young told Sergeant Gomez that Zora Foley had picked her up at 5pm on July the 7th at her Mesa residence and they drove to Tucson where they checked into the Sands Hotel as William Fountain. 
She then confirmed that she had known Foley for five years and that they frequently went to Tucson for weekend trips. Detective Rayner concluded that Anne Young indicated that the incident which resulted in Foley's death was completely accidental and that Mr Foley and Artie's broom had been clowning around by the poolside and that Foley had slipped and fallen and struck his head on the side of the swimming pool. No further information. And that is where the mystery ends really. With all that evidence that Marshall Terrell was able to source, he's effectively cracked the case of Zora Foley's mysterious death. There are slight discrepancies in Artie's and Dorothy's witness statements. Artie said that Zora fell back and hit his head when both were out of the pool, whilst Dorothy said that they were both in the pool swimming, which is confirmed by the clerk who saw Artie's in cut jeans, but that he dove in. The single blow to the back of the head would match with Artie's broom's story, but not enough inconsistencies to really cause suspicion for foul play. What what do you make of all this now? Do you genuinely think after all the evidence has been uncovered, all the different reports, the pathologist reports, it feels like to me, this is my opinion, I feel like it's it was a, it was a genuine accident and I think the people around at the time, Artie's Broom and Dorothy and then obviously Anne Young, they witnessed an accident occur. There was an accident that happened. They were probably all scared because of what happened. And they've all probably tried to, I'm not trying to say they covered it up, but they were trying to sort of cover up the events that happened, you know, Mm -hmm. rather than sort of give a genuine account. I think they were obviously messing around. It sounded like there was a lot of, you know, horseplay going on, as they called it. There was a genuine accident that occurred. There was no foul play at, at bay here for me. It feels like it's just a genuine accident that they've all kind of been a little bit inconsistent with when, it, in terms of what they've reported. Uh, the only inconsistency, really, with the whole story is obviously the clerk who mentions that there were three, three injuries. But you know, is that just something he said to cause conspiracy? Was that just something he said to the Arizona Daily Star? you know, to, to create more hype around what was going on at the time. What do you think about all this now you've had all the information? Yeah, I think with the pathology report, I think that pretty much clears that the fatal blow was to the back of the head. I think the inconsistencies is that, you know, Dorothy saying he definitely dove into the pool. If he'd have dove in, he would have, you know, you're going head first, you're going to hit the top of your head. I don't see how he could have hit the back of his head. Um, so I'm not, that's where I'm sort of look a bit, I'm, I'm not quite sure what happened. But then the other thing is, is that, it was uh, it wasn't lit up the pool. It's completely black. You had this massive divide, this cement divide that you know between the kiddie and, and the adult section, as as the um, brother-in-law said. But yeah, I think I think, but what I think happened is it, it was an accident. Whether I think they were messing around, and an artist has sort of pushed him, and he's he's fallen back and he's cracked his head on that divide. I think that's probably what's happened uh, by the sounds of it, with that being a fatal blow. Um, and then he's he's panicked and pulled him out. Obviously, They're, the girls have run in, and when they've come back up, my assumption is is that he's probably said, "Look, I'm going to give him. I'm going to say, like, you know, he was just messing around. He's feeling like I think he's probably worried because he's probably he may have knocked him in." And they're like, "We'll go with it," because by, by the other the account of the police report, the first policeman on scene, he's like, you know, he, he, it's our taste that pretty much describes what happens, and then the girls just sort of say, "Yeah, that's what happened." And then I think as years have gone on, I think that's where Dorothy's probably extended it a little bit and obviously it's been a long time you know it's 40 odd years before uh, that he actually 
Marshall Terrell actually finally spoke with Dorothy as well. So he didn't actually, he started, he finished an investigation in 2003, 10 years later, 2013, he's finally speaking to her and he gets that information and he manages to get all the right of the stuff, sources together. I think that clerk, though, I just think he, uh, I don't know, it's, maybe he thought he see three. Now it's dark, I don't know, there's a lot of claret on the back of the head. Maybe he, maybe it looked like there was three blows or maybe he is egging it out and making it bigger than it was and causing this conspiracy because that's what it's been and that's all it seems to have been for a long, long time for me. I don't know. what I think I'm with you though, Sean. I think it was literally, there was an accident and I think they panicked a bit because they're not quite sure what's going to come out of this and maybe someone's going to get done for it. I just don't think there's enough there to, to, make, to, to make me think that it's, it's suspicious in any way. I think that's certainly puts to bed any of the conspiracy theories and I think that really is the first case that we've dealt with which uh, with all credit to Marshall Terrell has, has actually been concluded and been closed in its entirety and you know there's there's no real conspiracy theory surrounding this I mean you guys that have been listening take what you will from it do you still think there's something there obviously when you've when you finish listening do let us know if you think there was something more to it it kind of feels like an open and shut case for this one to me Johnston yeah. I think yeah. it's, it's it's been very interesting and i suppose to round this compelling episode up about zora foley i think we'd we want to share with you just how much zora foley was admired by the city of chandler they actually dedicated a park in foley's name named a street after him and the former chandler mayor and foley's childhood friend coy Payne successfully petitioned for a community aquatic center to be named after him there was also a 3,000 square foot exhibition on view at the Chandler Museum from August to October this year, 2021. So if you do live close to Chandler, Arizona, you have unfortunately just missed it. The exhibition was actually called Bigger Than Boxing and was all about the March 22nd, 1967 fight between Zora Foley and Muhammad Ali at Madison Square Garden. Their description of what the exhibition was all about is a very fitting ending to this episode. And it reads... Two men face off in the ring for the heavyweight championship of the world. In the blue corner, the champ, Muhammad Ali. In the red corner, the challenger from Chandler, Arizona, Zora Foley. What follows is a fight at the crossroads of race, religion, sport and the politics of the 1960s. Bigger Than Boxing features the stories of these two boxers, the circumstances that weighed heavy on each man and the fight that was a turning point in both of their careers. And what a great way to to to, to end it, and on a more positive, lighter note for for this episode, of course, uh, admiring what Zora Foley was was all about, and you know, there's there's no there's no suicides, there's no murders, there's no rapes. It's a bit of a lighter a lighter episode, but it's still <laughs> still very much a lot of a lot of suspicion around what happened to Zora Foley. He died too young, you know, people still theorise, anybody anybody that's a real conspiracy theorist would still feel that Artie actually killed Zora Foley and that it was all a cover-up. I think there's many people that feel that, that that would be the case, but I think we've both come to the conclusion from all the evidence that's been put together and, and Marshall Terrell's done a fantastic job of doing all this, is that it was an open and shut case and unfortunately Zora Foley uh, was subjected uh, to an accident which occurred which ended his life. Dark side of boxes always stem from the fact that there's a mysterious death or, you know, someone is just a, an absolute arsehole murderer or rapist. And at the end of the day, if we had have finished this, you know, if we'd have done this in 2012 before 
and Marshall Terrell managed to gather this information, I think we would be saying, all oh, this sounds a bit dodgy, you know, two years before that, you've got all these mob figures that are, you know, trying to kill each other, and the fact you've got those three, three fighters in Sonny Liston, Zora Foley and Eddie Machers, all so close to each other, yeah. and die in those suspicious circumstances so anyone that loves a conspiracy theory is always gonna drag it out and pull that out of the bag but uh, for me look i think the most important thing is is that there aren't any articles out there at the moment that specify that zora foley died accidentally every bit of information you will find even if it's on wikipedia i think there's probably one article that was written in 2020 uh, last year that sort of indicates and mentions Marshall Terrell. I think Marshall Terrell needs to be brought up. You know, the, the fact that he's wrote this book, he spent so much time, he was a Chandler resident himself. He wrote several articles on Zora Foley. And it, it's nice to be able to to put this out and just say to people, look, you know what? The the, the evidence suggests that this was a freak accident. But uh, credit Marshall Terrell for the work he's put in and we don't do that it's a dark side of boxing but the dark side of boxing stems from the fact that he did die in in very young and in a, an awful way I mean it's just a dreadful way to have died and also just the suspicion that always surrounding it for all these years so it's nice to be able to finally say do you know what this one was an accident we're pretty confident it was the information that Marshall Terrell's provided it's, it's great so yeah, it's a dark side of boxing. It's, it was, I know the conspiracy theorists, as you say, people will be hoping to try and pull something out of the bag. Maybe some old mobster might say something that he uh, intimidated <laughs> the three witnesses at the time and said that he'd done it. Who knows? Look, I, I honestly think this was an accident. But, you know, it's nice to finish it that way. And also, Zora Foley, I mean, who'd have known? He was in a, having an affair for, what, six years and he was ready to leave his wife. So that's another thing that come out of the woodwork. But all in all, Zora Foley seemed to have been a very nice guy and a terrific boxer that died too early. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to to end the episode on that note. And and of course, if you want to listen to more episodes of The Darker Side of Boxing, check us out on Apple, on Google, on Spotify, even on YouTube. All our episodes are available there. If you want to follow us on social media, you can do that. Darker underscore side underscore pod on Twitter and the BTR Boxing Podcast Network facebook page instagram page and again the youtube channel on there please do go and check out all the available outlets for all our episodes maybe zora foley will get a career profile at some point and we won't just skim over his career like we've done for this because it kind of feels like zora foley is a very underrated heavyweight of that era who really should have had the opportunity to be the heavyweight champion earlier than what he did in his life he should have had the fight with floyd patterson i think when we do a career profile johnson and we eventually do one on zora foley there'll definitely be a lot more conversations about this but for now it's been a very enjoyable episode i hope everybody's enjoyed listening to the mysterious death of zora foley Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.